If you guys have a Bible, you can turn to the book of James. So our text today uh, is two readings from the New Testament letter of James. We're going to read James 1, 26 through 27, and then James 2, 14 through 20. So here is God's word for us this morning. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then in chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? is God's word for us this morning. You see, James yearns to see the people of Jesus have a faith that works, a faith that is exercised in the practical realities of our lives that creates a real-world impact. And he asks us, do you have a living relationship with the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit that changes both you and the communities in which you live. He wants to see in us a faith that works and a living relationship with Christ in the Spirit that changes us and changes the communities in which we live. And James prompts us in this way because he discerns among Christians too much of the opposite. Friendship with God that fails to transform us or anything else. A belief in God, a knowledge of spiritual truth that fails to animate mind, body, and soul. A religion that is loud and proud, rich with feels, but proves lifeless, useless, and polluted. And I do believe James intends for his words to unsettle us. They are a word of caution designed to move us to sober self-reflection and possibly even contrition and repentance. So let's pause this morning to hear and consider. One of the great gifts, we're talking about friendship with God, but one of the great gifts of friendship is that friendship changes both parties. It's why we feel excitement and sometimes terror when our kids make a new friend. It's fun to watch a a shy, timid child strike up a friendship with someone who is bold and adventurous. The time they spend together, their shared experiences, their affection that they hold for one another 
It will help the quiet one emerge from their shell. But iron sharpens iron in both directions. A hard-charging, oblivious friend will become more conscientious and conscious of the perspectives of others the longer they're in close relationship with someone who is kind and thoughtful. C.S. Lewis would call this catching the good infection. And James seems to pray that this would be the result of our friendship with God, that Jesus' life, way, power, and manner would rub off on us. Now, side note, some of you might protest. Hey, Ryan, you say the, one of the great gifts of friendship is that it changes both parties, but how can that be in our friendship with God? Isn't God unchanging? I understand being in a relationship with God out to shape us, but surely God is unaffected when he chooses to be our friend. Not so, actually. Yes, God is absolutely constant in his faithfulness and his character. There is no shadow of turning there. But choosing friendship with fallen humanity has forever shaped him. Think of it. God took on human flesh. That means for the rest of eternity, one member of the Godhead, Jesus the Son, will always share our humanity. He never puts it down again. It is always part of him. Friendship with us has permanently changed him. And friendship with us sent Jesus to the cross to save us. It left scars on his resurrected body that endure. And for a time, because he took his sin upon us, Jesus was separated from the loving presence of his Father, which is the literal definition of hell. And after the empty tomb, friendship with us meant God willingly bringing us into the unending life, love, and joy that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit experience with one another. Again, to channel C.S. Lewis, on account of God's friendship with us, we're invited to join in the divine life, the divine dance. But James looks at his community of fellow believers and he's concerned that their friendship with God has failed to change them. He wonders, are you sure you and God actually know each other? Do you know, just know of God? Or are you actually friends with God? We experience our salvation as a friendship with God, and the Gospels do a wonderful job of painting what entering into this friendship looks like. It begins with Jesus' initiative, his welcome. His first word to us is come. He comes to us just as we are in all of our brokenness and glory and need, and he invites us to know him. His grace, his forgiveness, his hospitality bridges the gap so that we might know God. But that's just the start. Jesus' second word to us is believe. Believe in me. And believe here means something more than just intellectual assent or uh, head knowledge. The demons believe up here and shudder, 
Jesus is, is, is not just asking for us to affirm that he exists and that he did X, Y, Z. He's asking for us to believe him here and here, to open ourselves to trusting him. So in this friendship with God, Jesus invites us to come. He invites us to believe in him, to trust him. Third, he calls us to repent. Repent means to turn the direction of our life towards him, to reorient on him and make friendship with him our daily pursuit. Repent is not a one-time action. It is a lifestyle. Make it your aim to know him, to meet him in his word, in prayer, in community, abide with him, familiarize yourself with his voice, his character, his manner. But even there, our friendship with God doesn't stop there. He also beckons us to follow, to join him on the adventure and let this adventure change us. Being friends with God cannot mean staying in the same place and doing the same things because God is on the move. He's making all things new, even us, and he's seeking and saving the lost. To be Jesus' friend means to follow him. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would receive my welcome and enter into friendship with me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. His apostle John taught us, whoever says he abides in Jesus, lives a life in friendship with him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus also declares in that same apostle's gospel, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. Friendship with God means receiving Jesus' gracious invitation to come, to know his welcome, his forgiveness, to know Jesus himself. And after you come, you believe in him, you trust him. And then he calls us to repent, to reorient the direction of our lives and to make cultivating a friendship with him our aim. Finally, he beckons us to follow, to join him in what he's doing and to let his life and presence and power be worked out through us as we journey with him carried along by the Holy Spirit. Come, believe, repent, follow. That is friendship with God. And I say all of this as preamble because we have baggage with the word religion. And our baggage makes us mishear what I think James is trying to say to us. I hear religion, I go, oh gosh, I am such a bad Jesus person. 
I am falling short. There's so much to do, so much I've left undone. Thanks, James, for the checklist. I'll get right on those tasks. I got to be faithful. I got to polish up my religion, make it look a little shinier for God's glory. Oh. We hear religion and it puts us in a weird headspace. We think we got to clean up our act and by sheer force of will make ourselves right with God and others. But that is not the good news. We can never climb our way back to God, never cross that chasm that we sung about with God and others. We rightly reject what is the false gospel of self-improvement by human effort. And instead we embrace Jesus, knowing that friendship with him is the only thing that will save us. And instead of having faith in ourselves, we trust his ability to break the power of evil, sin, and death in our lives. We trust his work on a cross to forgive us and to restore us to God and others. And we trust his resurrection power to make us new, to mold us and to shape us, to look and live like Jesus both now and forevermore. So weird things race through our mind when we hear the word religion, but that's our baggage, our connotations, not what James's original audience would be hearing when they hear this Greek word. For James's audience, religion wasn't the opposite of relationship. Religion was the opposite of irreligious. It was the flip side of godless and self-focused. So James is using this word we translate religious to speak of true worshipers, of those who are devoted to God and his will above their own. If you look this word up in a Greek dictionary, you'll get definitions like this. To live as God would have one live. To live as one should who believes in God. To do what God requires. James is saying that these are the rhythms that ought to be evident in someone who has been caught up in the life of God. This is what a lifestyle of someone walking in friendship with God will look like. I don't think James is giving us a task, list of tasks to accomplish. He is identifying for us what it will mean to surrender and take part in the divine dance of the life of God in us. And yes, I am stuck on C.S. Lewis's dancing metaphor because it unlocks this text for me. In his book, Mere Christianity, this is what Lewis writes. He says, The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life, the divine life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to be played out in each one of us. Or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern to take his place in that dance. There is no other way to happiness for which we were made. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not the sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to everyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up from the very center of reality. If you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. 
Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? If we are not experiencing a living, vibrant, useful faith that works itself out in the practical realities of our lives, I think James would ask us to consider if we've really taken that next step in our friendship with God. We may have heeded Christ's call to come. We may have opened ourselves to receive his welcome and forgiveness, his healing and grace. You may know him as Savior, but do you trust him as Lord? Have you oriented your life toward him and let him lead you? Are you letting him teach you how to dance? Jesus, James seems to indicate if you aren't dancing, maybe it's because you haven't gotten on the dance floor. And I like this metaphor because dancing terrifies me. Full disclosure, I will talk in front of people, I will sing in front of people, but if you ask me to dance in front of people, all of my courage drains away. It was the most terrifying part of my wedding. I am a determined wallflower. I will do everything I can to not even put a foot on that dance floor when I'm at a wedding because I believe Gloria Stefan when she sings, the rhythm is gonna get you, the rhythm is gonna get you, the rhythm is gonna get you. Now, maybe some of you didn't grow up with a Latin mother or you're too young for Miami Sound Machine. So let me give you a more recent reference. Uh, when we have family dance parties, my kids love to put on the 2011 classic, A Party Rock Anthem by LMFAO. It has a ridiculous music video that parodies a zombie apocalypse film. Uh, so in this video, the two performers uh, wake up in an empty hospital as if they're waking up from a coma, and they wander outside and they see a deserted street full of litter and abandoned cars, and they discover that humanity has been overcome by a wildly infectious song that causes all who hear it to get lost in the music and start shuffling start dancing uncontrollably and uninhibitedly. And this, in the video, of course, the song is the band's song, Party Rock Anthem. And eventually the two men decide not to fight it and to give themselves over willingly to this life-consuming dance. You see, dancing scares me because I like to be in command. I like to stay and control, but dancing is all about surrendering to the music, forgetting yourself, and letting the rhythm move you. It's all about getting lost and found again in the rapture of the song. And this is a perfect metaphor, I think, for our friendship with God, because this is the exact, it's exactly what it looks like to let Christ's life have its way in us us. So when James starts to talk about pure and undefiled religion and faith that works itself out in the practical realities of our lives, I don't think he's saying, do better. I think he's inviting us to take part in the dance and get lost in the music. Let the Spirit 
carry us and move us in a way that our lives evidence the faith, this faith that is living and useful. That our habits manifest a pure and undefiled religion. That we channel the very life of God in our human flesh. Most scholars call this, these verses, uh, James 1, 26-27, the thesis statement of this biblical letter. It's the heart of James's message to the church. But I don't think he's simply saying, hey, believers, you must do these three things. I think he's teaching us the steps of the divine dance. He's training us in the basic rhythms of life and friendship with God. Hey, when you get on the dance floor, let the Spirit move you. Yes, there will be a lot of surprise, a lot of improvisation. Don't try to master it or control it, but know the dance always returns to these three core movements. One, two, three. One, two, three. I think that's a waltz. Get comfortable and familiar with these three movements and let the music carry you. So what then are the three core movements of life in friendship with God? If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As we get to this point in James, I discern these three core movements. One, control your tongue and by implication your anger. Two, look after orphans and widows, the vulnerable in their distress. And three, keep oneself unstained from the world. Now you might think I'm stretching it, that I'm reading more than that is there. Surely if these are the three core movements of the life of friendship with God, we would see this in other places. We'd get this in more than two verses in James, and I would argue that we do. So check this out. I said that one translation for the word religion is doing what the Lord requires. Pure and undefiled doing what the Lord requires is this. It sounds an awful like, like Micah 6, 8, the thesis statement of that little Old Testament book. In Micah 6, 8, we read, Mankind, he has told of each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I see Micah's three movements overlapping beautifully with James's three. Control your tongue and your anger. Walk humbly with your God. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. That's love mercy. Keep oneself unstained from the world. Act justly, not like this unjust world. I think he's saying from front to back, this is what the life of God working itself out in a human life looks like. Walk humbly with your God. In that, it's going to mean a lot of being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Look after the vulnerable love we sing about it. Hesed, 
loving kindness, mercy, grace that is undeserved, grace that is costly and keeps oneself unstained from the world. There is a way of living that wants to shape you. Don't. Live holy lives that point to my heart, my character, my justice. So I was meditating on this this week, and then Brianna and our kids, we went to an Ash Wednesday service over at Holy Disciples up on the hill. And the gospel reading that night was from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had just called on his disciples to evidence a righteousness, a way of right living, a living as God would have us live, that exceeds that of the religious leaders of his day. And then he goes on to discuss three practical rhythms of worship and devotion. He says, when you pray, when you give to the needy, when you fast. And I was sitting there in that service, and I heard those overlapping beautifully too with these three central movements of life in friendship with God. Right? How might we control our tongue and our anger and walk humbly with our God? It will look like a life of private prayer and quiet communion with our Heavenly Father. It says in the Psalms, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust the Lord. And then Psalm 51, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. This is one dance move that Mike is talking about, Jesus is talking about, the psalmist is talking about, James is talking about. Look at the next one. How might we keep ourselves unstained from the injustice of this world? We will fast. We will say no at times to what is earthly so that we might say yes to God and his ways. And if you need a more explicit link here, this is Isaiah 58. Isn't this the fast that I've chosen? To break the chains of wickedness? To untie the ropes of the yoke? To set the oppressed free? To tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? To bring the poor and the homeless into your house? To clothe the naked when you see him? And to not ignore your own flesh and blood? Act justly. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Fast. It's one movement that he's training us in. He's saying this is what it is like to live life, to have the life of God living through you and for you to be living in friendship with God. And then how might we care for orphans and widows in their distress? How do we demonstrate our love for mercy? Through giving to the needy. Through personal, practical, sacrificial giving. Through meeting practical needs in close relationship with those to whom God is calling us to bless. And now that I'm seeing this overlap, as I'm hearing this music, as I'm sensing these movements that God is training us to get comfortable in, and you can see how much lack of natural rhythm I have, 
I have a twin sister. We shared a womb. <laughs> she got all the rhythm. That's my theory. But now I can't unsee them. These are the core rhythms of a life with God. This is what it looks like for us to enter into that divine dance. One, two, three. One, two, three. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with our God. One, two, three. One, two, three. Control your tongue and your anger. Care for the vulnerable. Keep yourself unstained by the world. One, two, three. One, two, three. Pray, fast, give. Jesus is saying it's this you choose to come and believe and repent and follow me, I'm going to teach you how to dance. And this is what the dance of my life looks like in the practical realities of your day. So hear what James is saying. Don't miss the weight of his words, but it's not just a checklist. It's the life that he wants to see worked out in us. He wants us, oh boy, to be dancers. So with that, let's pray. Dear God, as we come to your word, I am just reminded more than anything of your goodness. You are so good. Your character is beautiful. And what you're doing in our world is incredible. And God, I am touched. I am humbled. I'm honored that you care enough to not only bring us into your life, but to teach us how to live with tenderness. Like a small child, you are training us in what you have created us for. And God, I pray that you would give us teachable hearts. And God, as we hear your deep, deep desire to live in friendship with us, if we have stopped somewhere along the way, if we've come but refused to believe, if we've believed but refused to orient our lives on you, if we've oriented our lives on you but refused to follow you into the newness into the activity, the works that you are doing, we repent. We see that that way, that invitation is freely open, is freely made, and God, we say yes to friendship with you. We say yes again today. We will come. We will believe. We will repent. We will follow. Now teach us how to dance. Teach us how to live this beautiful life that is good, not just for us, but for a world that needs you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.